Good morning. Our scripture lesson for today is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Michael. And let us pray. O holy God, send your spirit to us again this day that these words of mine might, might point back to your word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ, and that by your grace and mercy, he might take up residence within our lives and within our world anew. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I wonder how many of you have been enjoying watching the World Cup soccer games. Pretty, pretty exciting, right? A lot of fun. A minister friend of mine here in town told me a great joke. It goes something like this. A preacher's favorite sport should be soccer. Because when we look at a soccer player, we see a kindred spirit who also struggles to make one point in 90 minutes. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so to be a soccer player or fan or to be a churchgoer requires patience. Some weeks more patience than others. It seems to me that the world we live in is filled with a great number of people whose patience is at its limit. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting and continue to wait. Wait for healing of an illness. Wait for a sense of belonging. Wait for justice and equity. Wait for an end to war, an end to greed, an end to poverty. We wait to be noticed or to be known or to be loved for who we really are as opposed to who we think people want us to be. We wait for someone or for something or for some answer. We wait. Amidst the countless things that are unique and different about each one of us and that at times draw us apart, there is a core fundamental human experience that we all hold in common. We wait. We're waiters. We're waiters. And the story of Advent 
And the point of this sermon, a point you don't need to wait for any longer, is that in our longing, in our yearning, in our waiting, God comes to us. God enters into our lives. God disrupts disrupts the path we're on or the waiting room that we find ourselves waiting in. God enters in. God shows up. God brings healing and hope and good news. God makes a way where we think there is no way. God brings reminders of God's unshakable, unconditional, and unending love. God is with us. It's the core teaching of our faith, the central promise of Advent, and the gift we prepare for and we wait to receive anew this Christmas. Now, depending on the translation, as Matthew begins his version of the Christmas story that Michael read for us this morning, we're told that Mary and Joseph are engaged or betrothed or even engaged to be married, but not yet living together. To fully appreciate this moment, it's helpful to understand arranged marriages in the first century world. It's helpful to set aside our ideas of falling in love or finding a soulmate as the chief reasons for getting married. First century marriages were, for the most part, an economic arrangement between honorable parents for the primary purpose of producing legitimate heirs for the husband's household. Spouses may well have come to love one another. There are indications that this happened, but love wasn't the reason for the marriage. So keeping that in mind, This marriage between Mary and Joseph has been arranged and was already legally binding, which is why the possibility of divorce is used in verse 19 in some translations. And so at this moment, where they've not yet lived together, they've not yet slept together, and especially in their culture, Mary becoming pregnant creates a huge problem for both of them with his and his family's honor at stake, Joseph decides to divorce her or dismiss her and to do so as quietly and honorably as possible. And he has a dream. You don't need to have gone to seminary to know that in the Bible, dreams have profound importance. For it is often in dreams that messengers of God come to us. They speak to us. Dreams are often those openings through which human beings encounter the spiritual realm. Joseph has a dream in which an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived with her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. If an angel delivered that kind of message to me, I'd have about 20 follow-up questions in mind 
Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait a minute. Wouldn't you? But not Joseph. There's no discussion, no debate, no talking about it or pondering it. The text tells us that Joseph awoke from his sleep and did exactly as the angel instructed him. And the passage concludes by saying, all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God is with us. And you remember how Matthew ends his gospel in that post-Easter encounter with the risen Christ declaring, we say it before every baptism, go now into the world and preach the gospel and baptize believers in my name and remember I am, remember what comes next, remember I am with you always. So Matthew frames his gospel he bookends it with proclamations of God's abiding and unwavering presence with us in Jesus Christ. He begins the story and he concludes it with that promise. The promise that changes the course of human history and that changes the course of your life and of mine. We are not left to our own devices. We are not forsaken or left in the wilderness or the darkness, or our places of fear or worry alone. In Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, the one born in Bethlehem, God is with us, and God will be for all of eternity. And so, friends, I wonder on this fourth Sunday of Advent, what are the implications God has in mind for us with this promise? For you, for me, for our community, our nation, our world, our world that is so filled with fear and with brokenness. What does it mean to say that God is with us in the midst of that? And how might we be blessed and transformed if we truly dare to believe that God is faithful, that God does not give up on us, that God unconditionally loves us, all of us, and that God is with us. If we dared to believe that our God is not a distant or detached or disinterested God, for the story of Advent and of Christmas is that God loves us so much that God enters into our earthly world and our human experience in Jesus Christ, his son, to redeem us, which means to set us free from our sin, to know us and love us and be with us through all of time. In his book entitled The God-Shaped Brain, Timothy Jennings invites us to imagine a remote village in Africa. No modern Westerner has ever set foot there. 
the natives live off the land using the same ancient methods and tools as their forebears used for the last thousand years. They know nothing of modern science or technology or medicine. One day, a group of medical missionaries comes to this village to provide whatever health care might be needed. The day they arrive, they meet a child overcome by pain near the edge of the encampment. Examining the child, they quickly diagnose acute appendicitis. Without emergency surgery, the child will die. Fortunately, the medical missionaries have a mobile surgical suite and all the necessary equipment to provide the life-saving operation. They pick up the child, kicking and screaming, and begin the emergency intervention. As the medical team works furiously to save the child's life, three other children watch intensely from a nearby hiding place. The medical personnel hold the child while a nurse sticks a needle in his arm and infuses fluids. The terrified patient squirms violently until medicine is injected and he quickly becomes unresponsive. The three children are terrified as they watch a masked man take a sharp knife and cut open their friend's abdomen. In terror, they run back to their village screaming that invaders have come to capture them and to do them harm. The entire village is aroused. The children, the elderly, the weak, and the frightened quickly begin an evacuation, running from this terrible threat. The warriors begin devising plans to fight against this hostile invader, while the medical Missionaries, when they finally approach the village, they are attacked and driven away. No one in the community is going to be foolish enough to let those barbarians in. What could the medical team do to engender trust? If they had called in soldiers and taken the village by force, would trust be restored? No. If only the missionaries had a member of the tribe, someone who knew the people, and spoke their language to go ahead of them and tell the villagers the truth. If only someone from that health care team could be born into that village, grow up among them, and reveal they were friends and not enemies. It's a parable of the incarnation, a glimpse of what just might have motivated God's heart to enter into human history through his son, Jesus Christ, that we might be healed, that we might be given hope, that in the darkness of our lives, light would come. In October of 1966, singer-songwriters Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel released their third album. It was entitled Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time. The final track on that album is a tender and moving song entitled Seven O'Clock News, Silent Night. It's Simon and Garfunkel singing in their beautiful harmony the words of Silent Night while the day's lead news stories 
are read by a newscaster in the background. News stories of war, political turmoil, illness, social unrest, all kinds of pain and uncertainty. The beautiful song reminds us that that very real world, filled with pain and death and trouble, not some sanitized or idealized version of it, but the real world is the very world that Christ was born into so many years ago in order to bring God's love and God's light. And it's the one that he will be born into anew if we will but have the faith to believe and the eyes to see. The God we worship has many names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Even here, even now, even amidst whatever joys and blessings, whatever pain or fear we face. This Christmas, may you know more than you have ever known it before, that through the birth of Christ, God is with us. God is with you. Matthew's telling of the gospel both begins and concludes with that promise. It is the core teaching of our faith, the central promise of Advent, and the gift we prepare for and we wait to receive anew this Christmas. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.